It's always a mind and heart expanding experience to go on a short-term mission trip. Uh, one of the things we hope to do is encourage trips that are done well and connect well with ongoing works that we're already a part of. So as we're engaged with what's going on in Haiti, uh, we're eager to see how we can further the relationship there and uh, get to know one of the ministries in particular even further, Mountaintop Ministries. So we'll be looking forward to hearing more from the team when they get back. We've been on the subject of the gospel for life from Galatians, and Paul is all about the gospel, and this is as much of any book in the Bible about the gospel. And so I'm going to just do a real jam-quick review of where we've been and then dive into our text for today, which is chapter 3. The first two chapters, Paul is, is going historical because he's concerned about their losing grip on the gospel. So there's been a movement among the Galatians, which is a, a region today in Turkey, so Asia Minor, where Paul had seen some churches planted. And so there's been some teachers who have brought in another gospel, which turns out to be no gospel at all. So he's desperately concerned because to distort the gospel is to destroy the hope of eternal life. And that's a significant, major, eternally uh, wrong thing to do. And then Paul defends his gospel and his apostleship against the accusations of false teachers. So the false teachers were trying to demean Paul and, and say that he's sort of a subpar apostle at best. And so uh, he had to spend a lot of time saying, I received the gospel directly from Jesus Christ, and I got my commission directly from him. And so he's not uh, trying to puff himself. He's just defending his, his role that God had called him to as an apostle. And then thirdly, Paul just kept preaching the gospel. He spent, after three years of not seeing any of the apostles, he spent a very brief time, 14 days, with some of the apostles, three, Peter and James, I think, uh, and then just got to know them a little bit. Then he goes on and preaches for about 11 or 12 more years out in Gentile regions, whereas the other apostles stayed in, in Israel. And then he finally goes and meets more of the apostles and spends some time there with them to present his gospel. So he goes up to Jerusalem, and he wants to be sure that they're on the same page because he's concerned about the threat to the mission because there, there was such controversy over the truth of the gospel. He wanted to be sure that their mission was not... He wasn't going to uh, run into opposition. So the good news is and was that the apostles agreed, hey, we, we have the same gospel and we're affirming your mission to the Gentiles and that's great. So the lead apostle Peter then later comes to Antioch. So that's the fifth point here. Peter comes to Antioch and Paul right away has to oppose Peter because not, no sooner did Peter uh, affirm that he believed Paul's gospel than he started withdrawing from fellowship with Gentiles in a gathering that was in Antioch Church that was a mixture of Jews and Gentiles. So uh, that was a non-gospel move because the Jewish Christians were, were still had that, that struggle about fellowshipping with Gentiles, considering them to be unclean, considering their food that they eat unclean, and even though they knew the gospel freed them from that, yet they still were not acting in line with the gospel. So all of that is the history leading up to today where Paul now gets right back to addressing the Galatians themselves, and he's arguing them into this truth that we are righteous always by faith alone. There's no other contingent plan for the gospel. There's no, nothing to be added to the gospel. If you do, you destroy it. And so his main point is we are always and only counted right with God by faith, never by works. And so he's going to do that under three sections that we're going to see in, in chapter 3 of Galatians. 
the three things we're going to see are that uh, Paul says he gives the evidence that conversion comes by faith, not by law. Then he's going to show them that being counted right with God has always been by faith. It's never been another plan. It's always been by faith. And the third thing he's going to do in the verses 10 to 14 is talk to them about why no one can be counted right with God. So let's look at this whole text, and then we'll take it verse by verse. It's very tightly argued, so we're going to walk through it verse by verse, but first we're going to read over it together. I'll read it, and you might listen. Chapter 3, verses 1 to 14 of Galatians. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those who those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, And do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith, but the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Pray with me, would you? Father, we are just like the Galatians. We're just like Peter. We, by our nature, don't believe the gospel. Even if we've believed it, we still struggle with believing it and living in line with it. So would you so affirm the truth of the gospel to our hearts this day that at least for a day, We'll really trust in you. And, of course, we want that to be ongoing for the rest of our lives. But, Father, we recognize that we're so anti-gospel by nature that we need it every day. And so, Father, this day, would Christ be magnified and lifted up in our sight, in our hearts. Give us wisdom and hearing. Help me to make it clear in the way that I speak so we can understand and apply your word. Make it effective to us. In Christ's name we ask. Amen. So Paul uh, really loves the Galatians, you can tell, because he starts out by saying, you foolish Galatians, right? You can just tell how much he loves them. Seriously, he does love them, and th- but they're in such danger, they're in such hazard, that that's why he has to use this tone with them. Um, he knows that he made the gospel really clear to them, so he's saying, how foolish could you be to get away from it? Earlier, he said he was astonished, that he was shocked that they so quickly turned from the true gospel to a distorted one, which is not really a gospel at all. And so here he calls them foolish. What fools, how senseless, how stupid. Not intellectually stupid, but just that they are uh, not discerning. They're just so easy to let go of the main thing that they're 
that has brought them life, the gospel. In fact, he goes on and says, who has bewitched you? In other words, who has cast a spell over you? Did someone hypnotize you? Literally, that's what that word means. How could you come under the influence of anything that would take away from your faith in the gospel or that would cause you to be receptive to a distorted gospel? He said it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. In other words, Paul so powerfully and plainly proclaimed Christ crucified, so vividly verbalized as if he painted a portrait of the passion of the Christ, displaying his death as the way that sin is paid for. How could they ever think of backpedaling from the gospel, adding human effort to keep God's law when he taught so clearly that Christ's death paid the demands of the law? You've got to be kidding. That's what Paul's... That's his tone. That's his heart in this. He he just can't imagine how they could be letting go of the gospel. And then in verse 2, he says, uh, well, Paul challenged them in verse 2 to consider the way the gospel has impacted them, their experience of it, how it came to them. Did it come to you by faith or by works? And he does this with four questions. So the first question is, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Our one God exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God, three persons. Do you get that? If you do, I don't. But the Bible reveals our God is that way. One God, three persons. The Holy Spirit is that person within the one God who unites us to the finished work of Christ, the saving work of Christ, applies the saving work of Christ to us. The Galatians knew, as we know, hopefully we know, that when we came to Christ, we experienced the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. It wasn't human works. It wasn't... Uh, self-improvement. It was spiritual change by the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So Paul could appeal to that and say, did you receive the Holy Spirit by law or by, or by faith? And as those, they were mixed groups. Some of them were coming out of paganism. Some of them were coming out of Orthodox Judaism. And both of them knew the deadness of that and the corruption of that. And so uh, they clearly knew that the Holy Spirit had moved into their lives and done an amazing work of transformation. So he's saying, think about it. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Then in verse 3, he asks him another question, a kind of a two-part question. The first one is, are you so foolish? And how do you answer that question? Yes, we're foolish. Um, so the answer to the previous question was so obvious, Paul again uses the F word, foolish. And since you began by the Spirit, he says, you began by the Spirit... Uh, who united you to Christ and gave you new life, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you begin by the Spirit's power only now to take over by human, religious, and moral effort? You nincompoops. That's literally what it says in the Greek. Close. That's a great word. I just have to use it. You don't get to use it too often. In other words, you start with the Maserati and you're going to end up with the Flintstone mobile. Okay, those of you who don't know what the Flintstones were this cartoon cave people and they made their car go with their feet. So you're going to start with a high-powered, you know, 16-cylinder uh, car and then go to the Flintstone mobile or, you know, the scooter. That's what they're doing. But that's the way that we do it, isn't it? That's the way many of us try to live the Christian life. Hey, thanks for getting me started, God. I've got it from here. That's how we do life. If we're honest and we think about it, Uh, We wonder why there's no growth or victory in our lives or joy or peace. There's so much anxiety and depression, discouragement. Not that those things never happen to us as genuine Christians, but if those are habitually where we're at, then we've got to say, what's happening here, flesh or Holy Spirit? And so then he asks them a third question. 
And that's in verse 4. Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? So Paul and Barnabas had suffered persecution and opposition when they first brought the gospel into this region, into the Galatian region in southern Turkey. And so the Galatians probably did as well. Uh, later in, in chapter 6, Paul says that some of the false teachers were trying to avoid persecution by teaching circumcision as adding to your spiritual steroid pack. And Paul's saying that, you know, if you teach that among the environment they were in, you won't get persecuted. If you teach no, no law added, then you get persecuted. He's saying, did you withstand the suffering and persecution in vain or not? And then the third question he asks, or fourth question is in verse 5. Paul asks this, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? So in other words, he's saying, remember how God so decisively worked in you. He's back to calling upon their reception of the Holy Spirit, uh, their experience of that. He's saying God, or Christ, gave you the Spirit and continues to give you the Spirit, even along with miracles, as he still is working miraculously in your midst by the Holy Spirit. Did God give you the Spirit by your law works or by your believing hearing of the gospel? And they have to know that it wasn't by their good works because they had none, but it was the gospel faith that they had by hearing the gospel and believing that the Holy Spirit invaded their space and began working miraculously in their midst and life transformation in their midst. So what say you, you fools? How do you answer these questions? Well, now he's going to move on from there experience to the history, and in verses 6 to 9, he's going to show how being counted righteous with God has always been by faith. And so that's what he says in verse 6. He starts talking about Abraham. He says, you received the gospel of Christ crucified for our salvation by faith, and you received the Spirit by faith just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. So why does Paul introduce Abraham into this uh, argument at this point? Well, no doubt it's because the gospel, distorting teachers, were insisting that while faith in Christ was a good starting place to be right with God, to be fully in with God, you had to be circumcised and keep the law. In other words, you had to adopt the outward customs of of Judaism. So Paul's saying, you want to talk about being a true Jew? Let me tell you what a true Jew is. How was Abraham counter-righteous before God? Paul quotes from... Uh, Genesis 15.6, he believed God. He didn't just believe in God. Lots of people do that. He believed God, that is God's promise, that he would make his descendants as numerous as the stars. Even though Abraham at that point was in his 90s and his wife was in her 80s and they didn't have one child. So Abraham believed God and was counted to him for righteousness. He believed God's promise in this First installment, one of the early installments of the gospel, as we'll see. Abraham was counted righteous, or more precisely, his believing God, his faith was credited to him as righteousness. The scriptures speak of it that way, faith being counted to him as righteousness, because faith and righteousness are the, the only way that righteousness comes to us is by faith. So it's a faith connection, a faith righteousness. Uh, the scripture says it that way because Abraham's righteousness was not in himself, but received by him and credited to him through faith in God's promise. So this was before circumcision was given, before the law was given to Moses. Um, and, and Abraham himself was not a perfectly righteous guy. If you know any of his story, you know he blew it a few times. 
such as lying about his wife a couple times, saying she's my sister to avoid uh, those who are trying to in, uh, uh, kidnap her. He lied about his wife, and he and his wife conspired to have a child by their own effort through their maid, Hagar, instead of trusting God to give them a child as he had promised directly from themselves. So Abraham was not a perfect guy, so his righteousness was not in himself. It was granted to him, credited to him for his righteousness by his faith, just as we do today through Jesus Christ. So, for example, you got a credit card. Many of you do. That's too bad because we tend to abuse them. But if you got one, use it responsibly. That's great. Uh, let's say your spending limit is 15000 That spending power, it credited to you, is from outside yourself. Now, the difference is we're obligated to pay our credit card debt, whereas Christ has covered our righteousness debt in full with his righteousness. If you can't pay the 15000 Christ paid our 15000 debt for us. So that credit that comes to us that we don't deserve, it's credit from Christ's righteousness to our account. That's literally what that means. In verse 7, he says, And know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. So to truly be a son of Abraham, whether physically descended from Abraham or not, uh, you must be of faith. You must be a faith person a person who trusts in God's promise. You must be a gospel believer just as Abraham was. Really. In fact, that's what he says in verse 9. In verse 8, excuse me. In verse 8, Paul says, And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So, the scripture is indispensable to communicating to us what we are to trust in God for, what we are to believe in God for. Paul says the scripture preached the gospel in advance to Abraham because it, the scripture, knew God would credit righteousness to Gentiles by faith. So this pre-gospel, this preview of the gospel that the scripture said was, in you all nations shall be blessed. You are going to be, through you, your descendants, all the nations on earth, all the people groups on earth are going to receive the blessing that I'm going to give to you. So that's a first ins- an early installment of the gospel. But who said this? Well, Paul quotes, he says the scripture said it, but from Genesis 12, 3, where he gets that quote, in you all the nations shall be blessed, God speaks. So who is it, God or is it scripture? Bingo. Give that man uh, something good. A cup of coffee. Give him, give him your credit card. So the gospel, so what, in other words, what God says, Scripture says. That's how the Scripture could foresee or preach anything. God says it, Scripture says it. That's where we get the gospel from, is the Word of God. So the gospel of being counted righteous uh, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, was God's plan all along. It wasn't something that God concocted in a last-ditch effort to save people due to humanity's failing test scores. The gospel is God's way of saving people from all races, all backgrounds of all times and all places. It always has been, always will be. Now, true, now that Christ has fulfilled all the gospel, um, the gradually released gospel previews over centuries, it's much clearer now what God meant by those previews. It's like the previews you see to movies. How does this fit in the bigger story? They show you these previews, and they're usually the best parts. But the Bible, really, the best part was Christ, and the previews were just shadows of things to come. 
So, uh, Paul's point is what he says now in verse 9. In verse 9, Paul says, So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. The way we receive the blessing of gifted righteousness and acceptance with God promised to Abraham is the way he did. By faith alone. So don't look to Abraham for support for adding law to gospel. In fact, if you do, God won't say, Hey, nice try. Uh, I'll give you a B- minus since you at least supported your answer. Nope. You don't even get an F. Worse, you get a curse. That leads us to what Paul says in verses 10 to 14. Paul shows why no one could be counted right with God by works in verses 10 to 14. So in verse 10, Paul writes, All who rely on the works of the law to be counted right with God are under a curse. All who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, and then he quotes scripture, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. That's a quote from Deuteronomy 27, 26. So the, in other words, the scripture is very clear. Everyone who relies on works to justify themselves are cursed, who does not perfectly live by and do all things that God has revealed for us to obey. Wow! I thought God was more lenient than my mom. And the scripture says, no, he's not. He's even stricter than your mom. So rather than improving your standing or enhancing your blessing by adding works of self-effort to the gospel, you're worsening your cursing when you add to the gospel works. In other words, God helps those who help themselves in regards to being right before God is wrong. It is God curses those who help themselves to be righteous before God. They can only receive a righteousness and declare their bankruptcy on their own. So Paul uh, says um, from quoting the Old Testament that cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to do them. In other words, objectively, you're adding to your ultimate judgment when you Go on your own, your own righteousness before God. Subjectively, you may, it may feel like this. You experience anxiety and insecurity due to your sense of failure, not living up to your own standards. Or you may feel envious of those who seem better than you. And so you blame and criticize. Or else you're proud and boastful as you strive to convince yourself and others of your righteousness. So that is the experience that we can feel when we're trying to rely on the works of the law, on self-effort, any kind of self-effort whatsoever, to justify ourselves before God. In verse 11, Paul goes on and says, Then now it's evident that no one, no one at all, not even you, is justified before God by the law. Not your grandmother, not your great-grandpa, but only... The righteous shall live by faith. That's from Habakkuk 2.4. And Paul is saying it's just impossible for anyone to ever be counted right with God by his own moral efforts and goodness. That those whom God counts as righteous live by faith. That is faith in God's provision of rightness through Jesus Christ. And with this gift also comes the very life of Christ. So it's a life, it's a living righteousness. It's the life of Christ. It's his righteousness and his life gifted to us. As the Paul said back in, in 2.20 of Galatians, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. 
In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. That is my life. My life is all about faith in Christ. I don't have a life separate from that. That is my eternal life. That is my righteousness. It is Jesus. My life must be all about Jesus. That's what it is to live by faith. So are you getting the point that adding anything to faith in the gospel to be counted right with God negates the gospel? Are you getting that? Faith righteousness and law righteousness are incompatible, as Paul points out in the next verse. Incompatible ways of salvation, of justification. They just can't hang together at all. Because, Paul says, the law is not a faith. This is verse 12. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. That's from Leviticus 18.5. So he's just going to the scripture again and again. If you think you can mix the benefits of faith and gospel righteousness with self-effort, law righteousness, you're wrong. You're not a winner because all the law can do is point me out as a sinner, right? That's all the law can do. If you insist on your morality as the basis for being counted right with God, then you have to do this little thing. You've got to obey 242 positive commands and 365 prohibitions, and that's just from the book of Moses. And then on top of that, don't, go, don't look to Jesus and New Testament writers to get you off the hook because they have hundreds more commands in the New Testament. So, if I'm not perfect, if I've, if, if I've ever lied, have I ever coveted, have I ever desired something that someone else had or, and felt bitter that they had it that I don't? I'm just asking these questions. Sexual sin, malice, Strife, have ever been a strife causer? Slander or gossip about others? Disobedient to parents ever? Arrogant hater of God? If I've ever done any of those things, I'm suspecting that maybe some of us have maybe just a little bit done maybe one or two of those things, or three or four, then we are not qualified. We it's impossible because our sinful bent shows up in those ways. So if you're going to add law to gospel faith, you cancel out gospel faith. You're on your own if you go this way. If you choose to go it alone, you're foolish. It's a deadly choice. Kind of like the scary movies that are popular this time of year, isn't it? The scary music is playing. The person is walking on their own with a flashlight out into the graveyard or out into this place where the freaky stuff has been happening. And um, so you know the ghost or creature is going to slaughter them, right? You just know that. So in vain, you shout at the TV screen, you fool, going into a scary place with scary music playing. The scary music alone should tell you that something's going to happen. And you're doing it alone. You're a fool. Don't you know you can't live by what you're doing, that you're going to be killed? I mean, we've, you know, that's how those movies go all the time, right? I say, Pastor, this is also negative. All right, let's, get, let's try to get a little more positive here. Let's go to verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. That's a positive and a negative. By becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Christ redeemed us from the slave market. That word, redemption, redeem, means to buy out of slavery, to buy out of bondage. Uh, they were used to it in this culture. There were daily slave sales in Rome. 
He redeemed us from the slavery to the curse of the law. He set us free. He liberated us by paying the price of our redemption. But when a person was executed under the Old Testament, it was usually by stoning, and the body was hung on a tree uh, as a sign that they were cursed. And that's from Deuteronomy 21-23. So Paul doesn't say Christ redeemed us by being cursed for us, but by becoming a curse for us. He was treated as liable for all that sinners like us would be liable for, left to ourselves. We would be paying our liabilities to God with the accumulated cursing we deserved without hope of parole. But Jesus didn't deserve to be cursed, but he became a curse for us. For us, Jesus became a curse by taking upon himself the law's cursing, our punishment. So since Christ has completely absorbed all the cursing we deserved, it's absurd and insulting to God to add to our paid and full right status before him with our law-keeping, our self-improvement, our religious exercises, our acts of penance, our walking around in guilt, mopey shame, being made a self-made person, or whatever else we're trusting in, medicating our guilt, uh, doing a makeover, anything else that we do that we think is going to enhance our acceptance with God. Or if we leave God out of the picture, enhance our status before people or ourselves. So the law versus the gospel is kind of like this. It's kind of like the duck hunter who's hunting with his friend in a wide open, barren, dry, dry land. There's a lot of dry brush. Far away on the horizon, he notices a cloud of smoke. Soon he can hear the sound of crackling. A wind comes up. He realizes the terrible truth. A brush fire is advancing his way. It's moving so fast that he and his friend cannot outrun it. The hunter begins to rifle through his pockets. Then he empties all the contents of his backpack. He soon finds what he's looking for, a book of matches. To his friend's amazement, he pulls out a match and strikes it. He lights a small fire around the two of them. Soon they're standing in a circle of blackened earth waiting for the brush fire to come. They don't have to wait long. They cover their mouths with their handkerchiefs and embrace themselves. The fire comes near and sweeps over them. But they are completely unhurt. They aren't even touched. Fire would not burn the place where the fire had already burned. So what's the point? The law is like the brush fire. I cannot escape it, but if I stand in the burned-over place where law has already burned its way through, then I will not get hurt. Not a hair of my head will be singed. The death of Christ is the burned-over place. There I huddle, hardly believing yet relieved. Christ's death has disarmed the law. Thanks be to God through Christ Jesus our Lord who endured the law's fiery curse that in him I will never, ever suffer a bit of burning, no condemnation whatsoever, ever, because Christ has already endured all for me. So you don't mix gospel and law. If you live by the law, there's a curse. The gospel is total freedom in life. And finally, Paul says in verse 14, the reason Christ redeemed us from the curse that we deserve for not obeying God's law is so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So what is that blessing? It's that we might receive the promised spirit not by works of law, because the law only brings a curse, but that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. That is how offspring of Abraham are created, by the Holy Spirit. 
and by being counted righteous. So not only are we justified, that is credited with Christ's righteousness, but given the power of Christ's life through the gift of the Holy Spirit. The blessing of Abraham, righteousness and life comes to us by faith alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. That is the gospel. And not only do we receive a right standing with God, but a new life that, although we're not wholly perfected by that new life, in that new life yet begins to work in us in practice what we are in position. That's what we're going to celebrate when we come to the Lord's table. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to talk about how we're going to enjoy fellowshipping with one another and with our Lord Jesus around the Lord's table. Father, thank you for sending your Son so right on cue, right according to plan. It wasn't an afterthought. All along, you planned for him to be the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. Father, I can't even fathom what it was for him to take my cursing for my daily violations, my daily rebellion, my daily ignorance and indifference toward your holy law. But thank you, Father, so much that Christ took my curse on himself, became a curse for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It's in his name we pray. Amen.